we're going to go right into our text from the book of James, starting chapter 4 in verse 1. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be a friend of this world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? But he gives greater grace. Therefore he says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Heavenly Father, even to read this passage is convicting. It's hard to hear what it says and not realize how much we need you. So as we go through this passage today, give us the grace to understand what it says and show us how good you are. Even in our selfishness, you, God, are gracious and greater. So teach us this morning from your word to better understand how we can live and reflect your son Jesus. And we pray this in his powerful name. Amen. Well, a few months ago now, felt like weeks, but it's been a few months ago, the elders had read through uh, a book on marriage, but it didn't really feel like it was on marriage. It felt like it was just on operating with people. That's what it felt like. Uh, Paul David Tripp's What Did You Expect?, which makes a lot of sense in regard to marriage. What did you expect when you married this person? But really, it's kind of what did you expect when two people tried to have a conversation and it did not go well? So the whole book was really saturated with how can I, as a spouse, live faithfully for the Lord in my marriage? But then, as we would discuss it week after week uh, in our meetings, we would go, man, this really just feels like I could apply this to any relationship that I have at all, and it would still work. I think one of the more convicting quotes from that book is this, about sin and us. Sin causes all of us to be way too self-aware and self-important. Sin causes us to be offended most by offenses against us and to be concerned most for what concerns us. That's what it does. It makes life about us. And it doesn't take even being a Christian to realize that people are selfish. We kind of, we see it. We may not know what to do with it, but we see selfishness everywhere. You don't have to teach your children selfishness. They just kind of get it. You don't have to teach your friends selfishness. You don't have to train yourself to be selfish. It's just there to meet your needs, your desires, your hopes. If only church would go the way I wanted it to. If only this happened the way that I wanted it to. If only this relationship would exist the way that I wanted it to. If only my boss would say the things that I want him to or her to. If only life were the way that I thought it would be. Then we would not have the problems that we have. 
Selfishness is a human problem, but it does not have sufficient human solutions. It has different solutions to the problem. You cannot get rid of your selfishness. You still drown. The solution to our selfishness comes from God, and we need to hear from Him. But first, and this is important, we need to let God accurately diagnose the problem, which goes right to the heart. So we're going to look at conflicts in James 4 this morning. We're going to look at the prayers that demonstrate that wicked heart. We're going to look at our allegiance and what that communicates. And then finally, we get to look at God's grace. Uh, Originally, this sermon was James 4, 1 through 10. But we're slowing it down, and this week we're going to do verses 1 through 6, and next week we're going to do verses 7 through 10, because 7 through 10 really show us repentance, and 1 through 6 show us the problem. So 1 through 6 deals with the problem, 7 through 10 deal with what do we then do about the problem. So we'll be in 1 through 7 today, So we just kind of march through this passage. It's all about selfishness, which is a topic we all care about. And it's something we're all way too familiar with. We'll start right away with conflicts. Our conflicts come from our selfishness. James, if you have not figured this out yet, dude is a preacher. Even his letters sound like sermons. Uh, And he'll state something, and he'll illustrate something, and then he'll restate something. And that's just kind of the cycle that he does. So I'm going to tell you what I'm saying. I'm going to show you what I mean. I'm going to then tell it to you again with different words. Next week, he's going to do the same thing. So he's always talking about selfishness, this entire passage, and the problem with it. But then he's going to show us God. As he shows us God, he's going to tell us what to do. We'll get to that next week. Our conflicts come from our selfishness. Now, many of you watching, many of you here in this room have probably been in church conflict before. You've certainly been in interpersonal conflict or work conflict or neighbor conflict about who's supposed to build what or whose responsibility is this or who's going to do this or your tree is over my fence and I need you to cut that limb. Well, it's over your house. You need to cut the limb. All those things that start to show up when we start to live relationally. Conflicts are everywhere. And James's audience the 12 tribes scattered amongst the nations, as he calls it, these people were dealing with significant conflicts. And they were not good conflicts, right? Conflict can sometimes be good because it leads to restoration. These conflicts were just leading to more conflict, more frustration, more anger. It showed their allegiance. So we read with the question, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? So, where do your conflicts come from? Uh, don't they come from you? Well, we don't like to hear that. We go, no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, I have my problems, but if the other person were more understanding, or if they were more loving, or if they were kinder, or if they were faster, or if they were smarter, or if they were happier, or if they were more generous, or whatever it might be, We're so quick to pivot off of ourselves and, again, try and make it about someone else. But don't they come from you? 
So he asks the question, and he kind of leads to the response where he goes, I guess actually, yeah, they do kind of come from me. Then he illustrates it. You desire, you want something, but you do not have it. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. All of those illustrations, murder, covenant, fight, or covet, fight, and wage war, all of those illustrations are about longing for something and doing whatever you think you can do in order to obtain it. Some translations, you might even read them this morning, read it like this. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot contain, so you fight and wage war. And the reason for differences like this, even if you go, well, my, my Bible doesn't say it like that. The reason is just because of how people try to construct the Greek words. They go, are some of these results of one idea, or some of these results of the other idea, or is it just kind of a list of things that we do? And on a passage like this, more often than not, when you come into these, where you go with that doesn't lead you to a significantly different idea of you're selfish and you do what you think is the best thing to get rid of your, or to address your problems, but you haven't really dealt with yourself. You're the problem. So sticking with what we read, you desire, do not have, you murder, covenant, cannot contain, you fight and wage war. And he's about to get to the problem with that. But have you ever wanted or worked hard for something that you wanted? Not the hard work pays off type, but where you're just going to try and scheme and figure out how to get the thing that you want. If you've ever been there, the kind of desire that's totally focused on you and your ends and your means and your hopes and your desires and your longing, and everybody else just seems like an obstacle between you and the thing that you want. That's what was going on here, and that is what is often going on in us. Wait, wait, you got the promotion? I work circles around you. How did you get that promotion? You? You're going to lunch with that person? Do you know how long I have been trying to get on their schedule? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that Matt Brantner called you? I've been wanting him to call me forever. We don't actually usually feel that way. Matt will call anybody. I would give you his number, but now this is going to the world, so I'll protect you, Matt. But people often feel like obstacles to our desires. When you make life about you, you're often willing to burn bridges in order to get what you think you want. But here's what happens. You get the thing that you want, and you realize it's actually not fulfilling. Isn't that interesting? You work really hard to get what you want. You burn the bridges relationally with your wife, husband, kids, friends, family, neighbors, church. You burn the bridges relationally to try and get what you want. You get the thing that you thought you wanted, and you are incredibly empty when you're done. Why? Because you haven't actually addressed what's really going on with you. You assume that life is external, and we'll even manipulate verses like, you know, uh, well, God's going to give me the desires of my heart, 
And right now I desire this. It's like, well, it's really different to desire something from you versus desiring what the Lord desires. To surrender and submit to what the Lord wants versus what you want. Like, well, I really just desire to be wealthy. That seems like a good thing. God, give it to me. I desire more friends. I desire this. But when you actually are burning the bridges and waging war and having conflict, God is an afterthought. The only thing you are concerned about is winning the argument, getting your own desires met, and focusing on what you want. And I don't, really, I don't want to understate this. The problem that all of us have is that we are rebels. We have the same problem. You don't want what God wants until he breaks into your heart and you realize that you have been wrong the whole time. We don't want to identify ourselves with rebellion. We want to identify ourselves with the cool kids. Even when Jesus comes into our lives and transforms us, we still have to contend with the flesh. And the flesh is going to focus us on Self-promotion, self-fulfillment, our own desires. Those things still creep in. It's the reason that you want to defend yourself when something goes wrong when really it was your fault. It's the reason that you're going to try and deflect and not take ownership over an issue that really was yours to hold on to. It's the reason that you will always tell me or your friend or your family, oh, well, had they done what they were supposed to do? Nope. Nope. Jesus had a way of doing this, didn't he, with how he would communicate with people, where they'd ask him a question, and that question would sound like it was like, well, what do you want us to do with people who are ridiculous and that we really don't like? And then he would ask some question. And all of a sudden, he'd ask this question, and what did he do? Like an arrow, he would just go, boom. And all of a sudden, that person was like, I was really trying to get you to condemn my friend. Uh, but, but now i got to deal with what you said. It's a gracious thing when the Lord does that. So what you will hear James saying time and time again is that the way you're living as a church doesn't reflect the Savior who died for it. I mean, that's, that's, that's the book of James. The way you're living as a church doesn't reflect the Savior who died for it. And when what you're loving and how you're acting and the way you're treating others, it does not reflect the Lord. And it's interesting, uh, this Sunday we have some volunteers in the room, so this is like the first time that it's not just kind of the cadre of four, uh, you know, trying to make it happen. So we've brought in some other folks to try and start building out what will happen. And as I was prepping for this, I was like, this is going to be the first time that we say, you know, that we have people in, we're going to talk about how we're going to engage as a church and uh, what we're going to do. I'm just going, isn't this time in our history one of the times that highlights our selfishness more than others? I mean, it's not that we're more selfish, it's just that we see it more. Where we, you're like, man, when in the world can I get another haircut? Thank you, Patrick Rowe, for my patio haircut as well. Um, Why are we as a church being so cautious We should just be blowing through stuff and like licking each other by now. It's what we need to be doing. Why in the world haven't we started doing stuff yet? 
How dare you make me wear a mask or ask me to? How dare you don't, right? Like, like, it really feels, and this is the weight that I felt for like two months. This is lose-lose. It's just lose-lose because whatever you say, whatever statement you make, somebody's going to think it's political. Somebody's going to think you're a coward. Somebody's going to think you're not a coward. You're not being safe enough. Like whatever you do right now, you just know somebody's going to hate this. Somebody's going to hate it. I mean, I've just started to kind of say, I'm not doing the social media thing right now, except for like when I share the feed of what's going on, because I don't want to have to deal with my stuff and also your stuff, which is like the megaphone of all the stuff you post. Like, hey, look at this, you know, this is crazy, right? You find the one doctor that looks at things like you do and you go, this person's a genius, you know, so this is just how we live right now. It's just we live selfishly and everybody seems like they're posturing, don't they? Everybody. And so we can't actually say, what would the Lord have for us? Because we're too busy trying to explain why everyone else is wrong except us. I mean, isn't this James 4? Isn't this it? We all have certain realities we want to see lived out. We have certain ways we want our friends and our family and our neighbors and our church and our leaders and our government. We all have certain ways we want to see them acting. We all have certain opinions about how that should be. And never once do we think that our opinions are wrong. Never once. I mean, you don't meet a person who says, hey, this is how I feel about it, and by the way, I think it's wrong. You don't meet that person, which in a way is good. I want you to feel strongly about what you believe, but could we actually have the humility to think, what does the Lord actually have for us? What could we do? And what values does Jesus have that we have as a church? Just let me go to my favorite restaurant. You know, I just want to go there. I don't want to get it to go. I'm an American. And I want to sit down in the restaurant and eat the food. And that's what I'm going to do. And you're like, well, we're closed. And you're like, well, I, I, it's just so funny what this does to us. You go to HEB and you're like, you feel evil for not wearing a mask or for wearing a mask. You just don't know which way. Like, is somebody going to stare at you either way? You run into somebody from the church and you're like, uh... Are you going to think that I'm, I'm being a coward? Or are you going to think that I'm being okay? Like, what's, what's the deal here? So, right? All of that comes from here. It does not have the Lord in mind. It has you in mind. Because when your lead is, how will this make me look? What happens? You've become the most important decider. Other people's impression of you has become the most important thing. So what's causing that? What's the source of fighting among you? Welcome to Genesis. We are. We should lead in with our membership classes like that. You're going to get bugged here because you're selfish and we're selfish. You're going to do things as members that we hate we're going to do things as leaders that you hate, and we're going to get along all the while because Jesus wants us to. And we bring ourselves under his lordship, not our own. So just, that's the diagnosing problem. But he actually shows where it happens, doesn't he? In verses, uh, the second half of two into three, he's going to say, well, our prayers actually show our selfishness. Our prayers show it. They reveal it. So our selfishness or our conflicts come from that and our prayers reveal it. Kind of an audit of our prayer life likely shows us the things that we're most concerned about. 
So as James begins to illustrate it, he says it like this. You do not have because you do not ask, which is prayer. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Isn't this often what we're dealing with in our prayer lives, though? Isn't this kind of what we do? We're always trying to balance what we want with what we should want. And sometimes we don't know. And I'll go around, I know, like, people are like, oh, well, you always just have to tag on to your end of your prayers, you know, Lord's will be done in whatever situation. I'm like, I get it. I know why. Jesus did that in Gethsemane. Let's go ahead and go there. But you know what Jesus also said? This is what I'd like to see happen. If there's another way for redemption to be brought to the world, now's the time. But still, I think sometimes we're afraid in our prayers to actually become bold and ask God for things because we feel like that's going to become selfish and doesn't submit ourselves to his will. But you can do both. What the readers were doing was just asking God whatever they want with no concern about what the Lord wanted. So what do we do with that? Well, James is making one thing clear here, and it's this. Your lack might be because you're asking and keeping with your will and not God's. When Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, what does he say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Perhaps, and if you're from a, a more traditional thy background, Thy works really well, especially for the cadence with the sermon. You know, we say, my will, not thy will, is sometimes, sometimes how our prayer works. Like, my, not yours, not as cool. So we don't actually have an interest in God's will to be done. We don't even ask that, because we just assume that our will is God's will. That's the wrong way to do it. The Lord's will should be our desire. We don't try and manipulate God into doing what we want by just praying a lot about it. God's not going to be manipulated. But that's ground on which you have no desire to tread, I promise. Trying to manipulate God to get your end. But this is where it gets hard for me as a discipler and a disciple and a pastor and a friend. Because if we're talking about prayer, I'm going to tell you to pray for everything. That's just the way that I do it. So when I'm talking to my kids and they're like, Dad, I'm really annoyed that. And they fill in the blank with whatever it is. We need more Legos, right? That's the thing in our house. We need more of this. We need more of that. Uh, I wish we could do things like that. I don't like the way my brother's treating me. I don't like the way you're treating me. I think you're being, like, all of those things kind of get balled up together. And I will say, if that's how you feel, bring it to God. Bring it to God. I wish my brother were nicer. I wish my parents bought me more stuff. I wish I could eat more candy. Bring it to God. So I will tell you, if you have a desire, bring it to God. Because I think this happens. As we do that and we actually desire the Lord's will, we start to realize that some of the things we ask for are really odd. And we, it, once you're in that company, you go, this doesn't seem as significant as I thought it was. So I say bringing, bringing your selfishness to the, room, the throne room of God illustratively, to bring it there, in that moment you go, oh, this isn't as big of a deal as I thought it was. And so even as you do that, if your desire is to honor the Lord, then all of a sudden you start to realize it. So my encouragement is, with a posture of what God desires, bring those things to him. But if the only point is what do you want, 
then our prayer, my prayer for us and for myself, would be that we recognize that and that the Lord will burn away the selfishness that exists within our prayer lives. So it's not that James's audience isn't praying, it's that they're praying for the wrong things. They're hoping in the wrong things. There's no concern for what the Lord desires. And that's where we're going to get into verses 4 and 5, is that that selfishness actually shows our true allegiance in that moment. What are we standing for? What are we doing? What are we hoping for? What are we longing for? James has focused his attention on the behavior of the congregation, but he's now about to kind of pivot and show them what this actually does in relationship to God. And he uses, like a good guy who led the Jerusalem church, he uses prophetic language. He uses that understanding of the Old Testament prophets to bring about the point he's trying to make. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James is, I'm not saying James was Jewish, James is Jewish. Jewish and had faith in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. So James did not stop becoming Jewish as he was writing his letter. And this is important for us because you can be a Jew who follows Jesus in the same way you can be a Gentile who follows Jesus. James was Jewish and his people were Jewish and his thinking was Jewish and his understanding of the Old Testament reflected so much of what he writes to his congregation. And one of the significant themes you will find throughout the Old Testament is Israel and her relationship with God displayed as a marriage. A marriage. In fact, the whole book of Hosea, read through Hosea, we did some of that last year in our reading plan, the book of Hosea shows us as much. So James takes the theme of spiritual adultery abandoning God, the one who cares about you, gave himself for you, and applies it to his people. And he's going to show it through the illustration of friendship. And he doesn't allow for gray. He goes, don't you know that friendship with the world, not friendship with your neighbors, not friends with people who don't know Jesus, but friendship in that you actually have communion with the ways of the world. You're interested in its ways. Remember when we talked about wisdom, but the wisdom from above is pure? But the wisdom from below is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. When you make your friends, meaning you allow your values to be demonstrated through the ways of this world, you are choosing the world over God. And what James says is, don't you know that when you do this, you have become an enemy of God? I really don't like that language, just personally. I wish he wouldn't use it. Because he doesn't give me an out. And he doesn't give you an out. If your love is for the things of the world and your operation is in the ways of the world and you have chosen the world as your friend and not the Lord and that is spiritual adultery every time. Now we get to verse 5. Verse 5 is going to be fun. So buckle up, buttercup. 
Because as you read it, you're going to find some differences in how this goes. I'm going to show it to you, and then we're going to kind of make a decision and fit that decision into what is going on in James. And before I get there, I want you to know different commentators and different translations that people preach from are going to go in generally one of two ways. I mean, you can read some commentaries, and they're going to go in like one of 13 ways because they're scholars and they have to write lots of pages to sell books, but that's just kind of their style. Generally, you're going to find two ways for this to go. As you read in the CSB, which is what I'm reading from because it's more stuck in my brain this year, it says, Or do you think it's without reason that the Scripture says, The Spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely. So God put a Spirit in us, and it envies. Kind of like post-fall, we're being jealous. Now read the ESV. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He, God, yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. Now, why the difference? The difference is, who's the one being jealous? And if it's that word, then is it they're being jealous or they're envying? Okay, so uh, Greek is a little funny because it doesn't always just make the sentence clear for the English mind and go, oh, I know what that means. And so the difference in the word spirit, spirit can be the object or it can be the subject. The spirit envies, or he or someone made the spirit, all right, and then he now envies. So that's the way the sense will work. In fact, if you just look into the footnotes of your Bible, you're probably going to see whatever alternate exists there. So translators are very clear to go. There's multiple ways that this could go. Here's the CSB footnote, just so that you know. This is how it works. So the CSB footnote says, He jealously yearns for the spirit he made to live in us. So it's either people's spirit envying, which fits with the context, doesn't it? Right? Because they're being selfish, and they're being jealous, and they're fighting, and they're warring. And that needs redemption. Or it's God's jealousy over his creation. Those are kind of the two dominant ways you can think about this. But here's what makes it interesting, and I, and I actually really like this, so bear with me, because this is cool. What does James say in verse 5? The Scripture says, here's the problem. You will not find that verse. You will not find either version of that verse in the Old Testament. If you could, that would make it way easier, wouldn't it? So James says, don't you think it's not without reason that the Scripture says this? And you go, okay, well, let's just find the reference. You go, well... Neither translation decision is referred to in the Old Testament. So now you feel like you're up a creek, don't you? But you're not. And this is important. There are times, and sometimes the, hey, show me chapter and verse people are going to be annoyed by this, but just give me, give me a little attitude. There are times when you say, isn't it good to be kind? As a church, isn't kindness good? Doesn't the scripture say it's good to be kind? Right? And you can all, even in this room, it's like, yeah, it does say that. Where? You're going to have to go find some type of connection to that. What did I just do? Right? I said, isn't this a theme that exists within the scriptures? Did this idea exist within the scriptures? And we go, yeah, it absolutely does. And then you got to, like, you won't find, I don't think, it is good to be kind right there, chapter and verse. But you will find a whole heck of a lot about our kindness and God's kindness. And so then you go, okay, well, that's what he means. So he's saying scripture says, and he's really doing theology. 
He's making a theological statement based upon the truths of Scripture on which he can stand. The problem is both interpretive decisions can be backed up by what Scripture says. So you're not helped there either. Certainly we're jealous and selfish and man's spirit wars and envies and battles and fights. And certainly God is jealous for his creation to worship him fully and freely and openly and without division. So now what? Well, that's where you go, what's going on in this passage? And the funny thing is right here, people are going to make a decision and then talk about how the context fits. They go, well, the context, may, you know, the context fits this. Either one fits, so you can't be too dogmatic. I just wanted to kind of walk you through how you approach things like that. When you go, where does the Bible say that? It doesn't really say that anywhere. Well, then what do you do? So I'm going to go with either the ESV or the footnote in the CSB. Why? Because I think that's going to move us to next week when we talk about repentance. Isn't God jealous for his creation to operate the right way? Isn't God concerned that his people worship him freely and completely and truly and purely? Now, it's true that our spirit, if, we're, if it's about our jealousy, we still need to repent. But I think that idea puts then in contrast, you're operating in a way that you shouldn't. And not only that, but your creator hates it. And he's jealous for you to do it the right way. Not jealous like a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I wish they'd look at me. I wish they'd like me, right? Not that insecure jealousy, but the jealousy that comes from being the best for you. I am the best spouse for Courtney because I am her spouse. You don't go, well, I think somebody else might be better. That's not how it works. The Lord is the best for his creation because he created them. And so you recognize the relationship of creator and created, and then by all means, the created should be in relationship with the creator. And at this moment, they're not. So that's why I go with either the footnote from the CSB or the ESV with that, is because it's going to move us towards this realization that I'm not where I should be, and God wants something different for me. What do I do about it? Now, James is going to get you there either way, but I think that's where that one lands. And this is how he starts to set up, and I love verse 6. God's grace is greater than our selfishness. So you're selfish, you're evil, you war, you fight, you're annoying, your friends are annoying, your kids are annoying, your parents are annoying, everyone's the worst, and yet, verse 6, but he gives greater grace. And then James does quote something that you can find in Proverbs 3, 34. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So James points out the contrast between God's character and their behavior. If you're living proudly and selfishly, God opposes you. But if you're living humbly and submissively, God is for you. And we're talking in regards to the relationship. How does that operate? And James' audience, we're assuming, are believers. So he's talking about when you're uh, proud and selfish and arrogant, you're being hostile towards God. When you're humble, you receive and recognize the grace of God for you, and you can find forgiveness. Which is beautiful. Because God never, and this is the great thing about God, which is so different than us, God never 
diagnoses the problem without also providing the solution because he is the solution. So, right, sometimes, even with the best of physicians, they're going to look at what's going on in your life and they're going to go, I'm out of options. Like, we know you have these problems. And if some of you have autoimmune issues and you've tracked that down, you've gone to doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor and they've gone, we see symptoms We know there are things, therapeutically we can address some things going on with you, but ultimately we do not know what is going on. I have a friend who for years was going to different doctors, trying to figure out what was going on, never able to get a diagnosis. It was three to five years later that somebody said, I think it's this. And then that moment you go, oh, what in the world? Why didn't you think about that before? But the moment the problem gets accurately diagnosed... Where is the Lord, but also providing the solution? And who is the solution? Himself. If you want to address the heart problem, you have to go back to the one who created you. If you want to come to me, you have to come through my son. For that relationship to be ensured through faith, we are given the Spirit of God which dwells in us. Humility is that necessary component of recognizing the grace that stands available for those who trust in the Lord even to those who have known the Lord here in this room or those watching who have found themselves as selfish, the grace of the Lord is there for you as well. But will we have the humility to recognize it? Next week, we get to look all at what does it mean to repent? How does that actually look then? And it's a beautiful passage because James really spells it out. So next week, and I, worked, I was working all week getting people's opinions, next week we're going to go through verses 7 through 10, and after we get done, we're going to go, this is what repentance is. We're going to be able to put language to it that says this is what repentance is. By looking through how James is telling his congregation or congregations to respond to what God has revealed about who they are. So we'll get to see the right response. For now, I want to ask you this. Where might you be living for yourself? Take an inventory of your heart, your relationship, your mind, and your prayers. And ask yourself, Whose end is more important, mine or my God's? It's going to reveal a lot about where we go next week as we figure out what to do with our problem. The gap between God's demands and your life, which this is way too small, but for the sake of the screen and those of you in the room, and I can't, I don't have go-go gadget arms, but the gap between God's demands and our life is where the grace of God is needed. And it's the gap that we need to repent of. That's what we'll work on next week.